Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Bankers podcast series, Banking in Transition. In this series, the Bankers editors are speaking to industry experts from across financial services to explore how banking is responding to global challenges and trends such as the COVID-19 pandemic, sustainability and the drive for increased technological innovation. I'm Marie Kemple, the Bankers Investment Banking and Capital Markets Editor, and in this podcast, I'm joined by Elizabeth Gillam, Head of EU Government Relations and Public Policy at investment management firm Invesco. Thanks for joining me today, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. And on that theme of transition, there are certainly a lot of major changes taking place within Europe right now. Um, In this particular podcast, we'll be touching on two areas, Brexit as well as sustainable finance. Um, I mean, let's start with with Brexit, which of course has now happened, but um, significantly the much heralded last minute EU-UK trade deal did not include financial services. So, you know, what what happens now in terms of EU-UK banking? You know, I believe the concept of, in inverted commas, equivalence is is an important one in in this context. The fact that financial services wasn't a a core part of the deal, and I would say sort of broader regulatory coherence, um, was something that you know lots of people wanted to see in the deal, and obviously wasn't there. That doesn't mean that you know financial services uh, cooperation between the sides won't continue. There obviously is a provision within the deal for both sides to sign um, a memorandum of understanding, an MOU, by March, which will set out the, the framework within which that cooperation will continue and that's now being seen as the next milestone in in the path towards achieving equivalence which obviously you know in the post-brexit landscape where bankers will will you lose their access to to what's known as passporting across the eu so the ability to, to provide their services across the eu without needing to get separate regulatory licenses in, in each eu jurisdiction equivalence does allow um, UK authorised banks to operate in the EU while relying on the supervision of the UK. So it's, it's akin to what we sometimes also call mutual recognition or, or deference. There will be provisions. Obviously, it will take some time. You know, we know for those of us who've been watching uh, the ins and outs of, of the way that equivalence has worked in, in other areas and, and for other jurisdictions. Um, it's a slightly unpredictable beast um, in that, you know, it, it's at the discretion of the EU and in particular the European Commission. There are no set timeframes of when they have to reach a determination. Um, and it's also unpredictable in the sense that, you know, equivalence can be withdrawn. And it can also, as we've seen in previous um, examples, can, can, you know, can sometimes become a little bit politicised. So I think the MOU and particularly, the, you know, the ambition to have this, you know, regulatory dialogue between the two sides, hopefully provide a broader framework for cooperation that hopefully will be a little bit more long-lasting and that will provide that support and trust between the two sides to enable equivalence to to be determined for the two sides and and hopefully take out some of that unpredictability that, that might be there. Yeah, and you've spoken there around the hope that there will be a framework put in place for that continued cooperation, but also that there is some kind of unpredictability still there, you know, with or without that equivalence decision. What do you expect to be the the challenges and, and areas of friction going forward? So there's clearly going to be the, the main question, and which is some in some ways hanging over the, the discussions around equivalence, which is obviously around divergence, which is, you know, 
as of today, by and large, the EU and the UK have the same regulatory regimes, um, and therefore they are uh, broadly the same. But we know that over time, those will change, not just in the UK, but also in, in, in the EU. The EU is constantly legislating and amending its, its regulatory system. We've just seen some changes to, for example, MIFIDs um, and the banking regulation as a sort of post-COVID measure to help speed up the recovery uh, being put in place. Um, and so that's you know, create challenges in terms of particularly how do the two sides agree that, you know, despite the fact that the rules aren't maybe word for word the same, they still do roughly the same things. And then, as I said, there's the politics of all of this, uh, which, you know, we know that there are um, there is a broader view within the EU around what they're calling strategic autonomy. How do we make sure that the, you know, they want to make sure that the EU is, is self-sufficient in key industries and clearly you know, the, what they perceive as an over-reliance on, on the City of London, particularly when it comes to Euroclearing, has, has been a bugbear uh, for certain politicians and, and central bankers for some time. And therefore, that sort of, you know, will continue to drive some friction and, and potentially some, some issues in terms of how they address that balance and what activities they may want to try and ensure happen within the EU27 versus which activities they may be happy to see happen, happening either in London or indeed elsewhere in the world. No, it's fascinating and, and obviously a key moment in, in the long-term development of European financial services. And we could keep talking about that for the rest of the podcast, probably. But I'm also keen to talk about sustainable finance because, you know, as, as it's well known, Europe continues to be a world leader in, in this area. And I think there are some interesting developments coming down the track as well, particularly on ESG data and reporting. So, for instance, in March, we'll see the implementation date for the EU sustainable finance disclosure regulation. I mean, how significant is that regulation and what changes is it going to bring? So for me, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or, or SFDR as we often abbreviate it to, um, is really the tip of the iceberg of, of a whole, you know, plethora of changes that are going to be coming through. Um, and though, although a lot of us are fixated on the 10th of March, it's sort of the big D-Day, it's actually going to be an iterative process with lots of smaller changes coming through. So for example, you know, with SFDR, we will also then have what's known as the taxonomy, which is a new classification system for environmentally sustainable um, activities that will get added on. There will be changes um, to banking regulation to mandate how ESG risk and climate risk are taken into account uh, by banks in, in their risk management uh, processes. And so there will be a whole slew of, of different changes coming through um, over the next couple of years. And, and SFDR is really, I guess, the sort of wrapper that, that brings it all together and, and allows firms to, to disclose to the market how they're addressing these various changes. I mean, in terms of the, the, the broad changes, the industry has been adapting to ESG uh, for some time. Obviously, there are some who, who, who are further out in front than others. For those people, probably SFDR is not a game changer, but more a, a sort of, you know, a good opportunity to sanitize what's already there and, and bring it into line and to, to think around um, these issues more holistically. Obviously, for other firms who may be, uh, you know, playing catch up, it may be a, a, a bigger issue. And it's really about putting ESG more, more generally um, as a much more central topic within the financial services industry and really putting it on a, on the same pillar and, and the par with the same way that we would talk about counterparty risk or credit risk or, or liquidity risk. Certainly sounds like a lot of change is coming with, within Europe. But often when people talk around sustainable finance, an issue that comes up is the importance of ensuring a global approach 
on these issues in order for there to be long-term and meaningful success and change. Um, how big a difference do you think will it make that we now have had a new US president come into office? How big a difference will that make in terms of having someone who is more sympathetic to environmental issues, do you think, in terms of that global cooperation piece? I think it will make a difference. Clearly, the US is the largest global economy, a huge financial market uh, with, with huge players. And not only was the previous administration, you know, not on the same wavelength as the EU, but almost going going in the opposite direction. Um, and that was clearly, you know, creating fragmentation within the global markets and, and uh, creating issues for those, you know, firms that are seeking to, to invest globally or indeed uh, looking to, to source capital globally. I think also from a you know, a more macro perspective, having such a big economy, rejoining the Paris Agreement, such a strong signal, um, you know, the future direction that the US will be taking. Um, and it really means that um, it provides that momentum for those who, who might argue, for example, the EU only makes up about 9% of all global emissions. So, you know, yes, we can reduce it down to zero, but in the grand scheme of things, it, it, you know, that won't necessarily make a big dent in, you know, the target towards 1.5 degrees. Whereas, you know, when you have the US and also China, we mustn't forget, have also committed to uh, a net zero target by 2060. And when I think you have the three, you know, big blocks across the across the world all committed to that same target and moving, you know, it hopefully more in sync towards that, it will really help galvanize, uh, you know, markets and the industries towards that common goal and, and reducing any frictions and fragmentation that there might be in the market um, and really creating that, that single global framework. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing your views and experiences with us, Elizabeth. Obviously, some very interesting times coming up in, in the months ahead. I'm afraid that's all for this podcast, but you can keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify and Acast, as well as following our discussions at thebanker.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.